Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. U.S. Senator Gary Peters just returned from a trip to Europe as part of a delegation meant to strengthen American ties with allies in its response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'll talk with him about that and more, and we'll hear from University of Pennsylvania professor Dorothy Roberts about her book, Torn Apart, how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. That's coming up after the news on Detroit Today. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson. A little later in the show, we're going to have a big conversation about the child welfare system in America. University of Pennsylvania law professor and sociologist Dorothy Roberts says America's child welfare system has done immense damage, especially to African-American families. We'll talk about her book, Torn Apart. But first... Right now, we're more than two months into the Russian invasion of Ukraine between Ukrainians' surprising ability to fend off Russian troops and hold on to their country, as well as the horrors of war that we've seen in recent weeks. The questions about where this is all headed and how long it will continue only get more complicated over time. U.S. Senator Gary Peters of Michigan has just returned from official Senate travel in France, Italy, and Georgia. He was part of a U.S. delegation discussing ways to strengthen Americans' transatlantic alliance and maintain a united front against Russia and its aggression in Ukraine. The delegation met with U.S. diplomats abroad, senior foreign government officials, and leaders of those European countries. He also met with exiled Russian journalists and dissidents. Senator Gary Peters joined me earlier this morning to talk about that trip and more. Here's our conversation. Senator Gary Peters, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, good to be with you, Jake. Thank you. So let's start with this trip that you just got back from. Um, Why was this trip necessary and what did you achieve? Well, the the, the trip was necessary for a couple of reasons. One uh, is to strengthen uh, our relations uh, with our our allies and to, to make sure that we are all Aligned in our in our strength uh, against uh, the Russian aggression, the, the Putin war against uh, Ukraine. So, meeting with key allies uh, in France and Italy was important. We we discussed uh, how our governments are going to continue to provide uh, military aid to, to the Ukrainian military, as well as humanitarian aid to to deal with uh, humanitarian disaster, both in Ukraine as well as uh, refugees uh, coming into their country, uh, our country, uh, and other other countries. We also wanted to spend some time uh, in Georgia. Uh, The folks uh, in Georgia are incredibly concerned that they are next. Uh, They border Russia. Currently, uh, roughly a third of their country is being occupied uh, by Russian uh, soldiers from an incursion back in 2008. Uh, In fact, as we sat in the capital city in Georgia, we were roughly 25 miles uh, away from Russian uh, soldiers that had occupied part of the country. And Clearly, they could move into the capital city very quickly. So the Georgians want to know that the United States and the West and democracies across the world will will support them uh, during a, a very, uh, very scary time for them. Are there any signs or concerns of any fraying in the sort of unity that uh, the United States has had with European allies? No. In fact, uh, I was uh, encouraged that it just seems stronger than ever. NATO uh, is very strong. I mean, without a question, uh, all of the key officials we met in Italy and France uh, were completely focused on uh, making sure that Ukraine uh, can uh, push back against uh, Putin and survive and have the resources uh, that they need. And we also talked about how this is a, a real, real key development for the future of NATO and for our alliances, that we have to stand together against these authoritarian governments, these dictatorships that are attacking democracy and democracies of the world have to understand that this is a real threat. We have to continue to make sure we have both strong economy and strong military to make sure that we can stand up against these authoritarians that are a threat to world democracy. 
And you also met with exiled Russians in Georgia. Um, what did they tell you? What did you hear from them? Yeah, the Russians, uh, they were uh, journalists who left Russia because of the fear that they have uh, that they uh, will uh, be, a, be imprisoned. Uh, and so they were in uh, Georgia. They were still engaged in their activities, particularly through social media, in order to get the information out uh, to uh, the Russian citizens as to what's actually happening in Ukraine. Although they were very clear that the, the state media that's run by the Russian government, run by Mr. Putin, uh, makes it very difficult to, to get the, the story to the Russian people who are, are, are constantly being bombarded by misinformation and disinformation. The same kind of campaigns the Russians are engaged in uh, outside of Russia as well. We certainly see that here in the United States, uh, the Russian campaigns of misinformation. It's evident in, in Europe and particularly in Georgia, where they're constantly bombarded by those messages. But these were some courageous uh, Russian journalists who are standing up uh, to that uh, and continuing to put out uh, information. But uh, certainly they outlined the, the challenge uh, that that involves. Through the end of this uh, trip, I'm curious, did you come away with any concrete next steps? Well, the, the concrete next steps is that we, we need to continue to provide additional support uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, it's clear that they need to continue to get uh, military support, particularly some heavy armaments that's now going into Ukraine. Long-range artillery, for example, is critically important as the Russians move to this next phase of the, of the, the Putin war uh, to uh, uh, in Donbass, uh, which will require heavy artillery. That's being provided. Uh, and advanced weapons are being provided by both the, the French military and the Italian military uh, as well. And the, the need to continue to do that and to step up, step it up was uh, was pretty clear. Mm. I want to change the subject a little bit. Um, you're one of a number of Democrats uh, right now in Congress who is pushing against the Biden administration's move toward ending Title 42 at the southern border. Uh, for those who don't know, that's the Trump era public health order that stopped migrants and asylum seekers from crossing the border into the U.S. due to COVID, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, since then, the CDC has said, uh, as of ju you know, just recently, that there's no public health reason to continue that order. Um, you've supported reopening travel to vaccinated people on our border with Canada to the north. Uh, why are you skeptical of this change? Uh, well, my, my view is, is simply I need to have information as to how we're going to handle what will likely be a surge of folks uh, on the southern border. As chair of Homeland Security, my, my job is, uh, is oversight of security of the homeland and to make sure that uh, border security is uh, first uh, and foremost uh, in our minds. And so I've asked the administration to provide for us uh, a plan as to how they're they're going to deal uh, with uh, this surge. Or we're going to have a hearing next week in my committee. We're going to have Secretary Mayorkas uh, before us. He'll uh, be answering questions that we have. We're going to have a, another more detailed uh, uh, hearing on the southern border in next week uh, as well, particularly to deal with uh, fentanyl and drugs that are coming across the southern border. So my, so my view has simply uh, has not been a, a opposed to uh, lifting Title 42. It's about I want to make sure the administration has a comprehensive plan. That's my job as a chair of the committee to provide oversight to make sure we have a comprehensive plan in place. And if we're going to need additional resources or additional uh, support to, to make sure that that happens uh, properly, Congress needs to be there providing that type of support. We need to we need to be working in conjunction with the executive office to make sure that our borders are secure and that resources are available. And and are you are there concrete things that you want to see in that plan? Is there are there things that you think must be a part of the the president's plan or the the administration's plan to to end this uh, Title Forty Two um, that would get your support? Well, I think there's a variety of things. I and mean, uh, he just uh, there is a comprehensive report that was just put out that I will be uh, going over in the coming days uh, and then ask questions related to that report when Secretary Mayorkas and other uh, Homeland Security officials are before us uh, next week. But if we, we do have a, a surge uh, of folks coming across the, the border, we want to make sure that folks are being handled uh, in uh, with dignity and and appropriately, uh, there needs to make sure we have uh, humanitarian issues that are being addressed uh, on the on the border. We certainly saw the last uh, administration, prior to this administration, how horribly they handled the situation on the southern border. We have to make sure that we're doing a much better job uh, this time uh, when it comes to uh, handling folks who are coming across the border and applying for asylum. 
I certainly would like to see the asylum process uh, uh, sped up uh, dramatically. Right now, when someone crosses uh, the border and uh, and asks for asylum, the the process uh, can take up to eight years, eight years uh, before that process works uh, through the system. That's simply unacceptable. Uh, when I was in uh, in France, we talked about border issues, immigration issues uh, in France, and uh, the French are able to do this process uh, in well less than a year, and yet here in the United States it takes eight years. That has to change. And Senator, I know you have to get going. I did want to note that you were recently selected to serve on the conference committee to finalize the U.S. economic competitiveness package that's passed both chambers on Capitol Hill. And a big part of that is boosting semiconductor production, which has been a huge uh, supply chain issue here in the United States for the auto industry and others. Um, I did want to ask about um, what the some of the underlying issues there, um, even if uh, there are skeptics who say that even if you did increase manufacturing capability here in the United States for semiconductors, many of the raw materials needed for those semiconductors come from places like Russia and China. Wouldn't that uh, supply issue be, a, wouldn't that remain a significant bottleneck? Well, we, we have supply chain issues uh, across the, the supply chain from raw materials to other component uh, parts. And uh, that are, those are exactly the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about as to how do we make these uh, supply chains more secure. Certainly, though, the manufacturing is the issue before us right now. Most of the, the chips that we use uh, in our everyday products, including automobiles, and certainly we're seeing that the impact uh, in Michigan uh, very directly with the shortage of chips in our automobiles, which currently contain thousands of these chips in every uh, automobile, we can't keep shipping this stuff overseas and being reliant on foreign uh, countries to so ship them to the United States. To me, these are homeland security, national security interests that have to be located uh, here in the United States. And uh, and the, the chips uh, demand is only going to go up. It's not going to go down in the future. As we uh, In automobiles, for example, as you electrify, the, those require even more uh, chips. Uh, as we move to self-driving technologies that will increase the safety of vehicles dramatically, that will require even more chips. Uh, and as artificial intelligence uh, continues to drive so much of our economy, that will require a lot of chips. So we have to be thinking comprehensively about this from a manufacturing standpoint and secure supply chains uh, for, uh, for raw materials. Uh, so certainly uh, all of those factors are things that we need to be addressing right now. U.S. Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from Michigan, thank you so much for joining us today on Detroit Today. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, coming up on Detroit Today, we'll hear from University of Pennsylvania law professor and sociologist Dorothy Roberts about her book, Torn Apart, how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. We all want our kids to be safe. We want them to be able to play, to learn, to explore the world around them without fear of violence. They are, by their nature, innocent, and they deserve these freedoms. But we already know that in the U.S., at least, we don't often give children, particularly poor and black children, those freedoms. Child poverty is the highest in the U.S. compared to other developed countries. Detroit alone has 72% of its children living in high poverty areas, 72%. Children who live next to highways and oil refineries are subject to higher levels of asthma, other health concerns. Too many children don't have enough to eat and don't have enough safe spaces to play. And what is true for children must also, by its nature, be true for parents. The difference is that parents are often blamed for a defective environment. They are often blamed for not offering their kids appropriate housing when they can't afford it, or clean water when their city 
doesn't provide it. Or adequate transportation when public transit is too slow or it just simply doesn't exist. Still, we often intervene in these people's lives and offer them, not resources, but penalties and more penalties. Sometimes we take their kids away from them. Sometimes we impose employment restrictions on them, and sometimes we even incarcerate them. This is the argument that Professor Dorothy Roberts makes in her new book, Torn Apart, how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. Roberts is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She believes the child welfare system has become a, quote, benevolent terror and needs to be abolished. Professor Roberts, I really want to welcome you to the show and thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for that excellent introduction, which really points to my arguments in the book. I appreciate that. Well, and and I want to start here with this conversation. This is such a this is one that we don't have very often uh, in in the public sphere. Um, When people think of the child welfare system, they tend to think of good people who are intervening to protect and and maybe even save innocent children. And I know uh, from from, you know, covering state government and the, the systems in place, there are good people working within the system. But what does that perception, what does that story of what the system is doing, what does it miss? Well, it misses the very design of the system. Uh, Yes, there may be good people with good intentions who work in it in order to try to keep children safe, but the system itself is designed to be based on punitive interventions into the most politically disenfranchised and disadvantaged communities. So it isn't really designed to keep children safe. It's really designed to, as you said in the introduction, blame parents in struggling communities for the risk to their children that are actually caused by deep structural inequalities and the failure of our society to provide for them. And from the very beginning, from its roots in U.S. history, it's been a system that only, only handles the needs of impoverished families hardly ever are middle-class and affluent families involved. It's targeted Black communities and Native communities in particular from the very beginning, and also impoverished uh, white children, uh, initially mostly immigrant children from Europe or their parents from Europe. And it operates by accusing them, by investigating intensively, families, and then by punishing them in some way, either by mandating a list of tasks they have to perform, which have often have nothing to do with the needs of the family, or even separating children, a high rates of family separation. In fact, as you mentioned, the U.S. has the highest rate of child poverty among Western nations. It also has the highest rate of taking children away from families among Western nations. And then uh, for too many children, it means permanently separating their legal relationship with their families while they stay in a very harmful foster care system, which also includes a lot of violence uh, by staff, by other children who are in the system because it's a traumatic experience that they've been through. And uh, is a pipeline to juvenile justice and prison. So that's the true story of how the system operates, how it's designed, what its history is, and that is all papered over by this narrative that it's a kind and benevolent ser- social service provider to support families and protect children. So, so a question that I think has to be asked near the top of this conversation for a lot of people listening who maybe haven't 
thought as much about this or, or have seen what it actually looks like, I think one of the questions that pops in your mind first is, okay, but what about children who really are in danger? What about children whose parents or the situations that they're in, there there really does need to be some kind of intervention. Um, I'm curious, uh, Professor Roberts, what you think of that. Is, is there some is is there a, 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 a system of intervention? Is there a system that could protect those children that doesn't look like this? Yes, we already have ways of protecting children, keeping children safe. Uh, the main way we could do it is by providing better resources to families who are in need. It's first important to recognize that the vast majority of children taken from their families are taken because of so-called neglect, which is usually confused with poverty. State statutes define neglect as failing to provide a list of material needs that children have, like clothing and housing and food and medical care, or they're vague. They're very vague. They just say failing to provide adequately for the well-being of children. And so in a majority of cases, the needs of children could be met in their homes without taking them away and even without any kind of invasive government intervention. We know, for example, that when the Biden administration sent out uh, checks to families or allow them to have a child tax credit, that that helped to reduce child poverty in America. And we already know lots of ways we could reduce childhood poverty. We just don't do it and instead rely on this system. Now, uh, there's been estimates that as many as a third of children in foster care now could be returned home safely if they only had adequate housing. So one way that we could keep children safe is to have community-based or uh, government-provided material resources for families. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't still be some cases where parents, uh, are for because of mental illness or uh, stress, you know, are, are uh, failing to take care of their children or even physically or sexually abusing their children. But uh, many of those cases would also be reduced if families had better resources. Uh, and we could take care of those conflicts in other ways than putting children into a foster care system, which also has terrible outcomes and often sexually and violently abuse children as well. So, uh, for example, uh, there could be a form of drug treatment that is voluntary, that's adequate, that's not punitive, that would help with substance disorders. Uh, there are examples of what's called transformative justice, that many survivors of violence are developing and advocating for because they're better than putting people in prison or taking children away at resolving the root causes of violence in homes. Right now, the system we have actually deters people from getting help, deters family caregivers from seeking help and children from seeking help because they're afraid of this very accusatory and in some ways terroristic uh, system that doesn't actually provide the help that families need but threaten and take away children. And so this is a deterrent to fully engaging with the kinds of programs and services we have now. Uh, just to give some examples, uh, teachers, doctors, social service providers are all mandatory reporters. And in many cases, they report children who simply need help. The families that don't have the material, concrete resources they need. And they don't intend for the family to be destroyed. They don't intend for excessive intervention and investigation and surveillance of the family. They just want the children to get help. And families then are frightened that they're going to 
if they report or divulge their needs, they're going to be reported back to the Child Protective Services and risk their families being dismantled and, and traumatized. And so it actually is a system that drives people away from the possibility of help that we have now. You know, hospitals and schools and community-based social service programs could be a way to reduce neglect and abuse in homes. But instead, because they're part now, they've been drawn into this surveillance dragnet and, and the threat of family separation, they cannot fulfill their potential. So the system we have now not only throws children into harmful fostering situations, it also deters us from providing the caring resources that could be available And they also prevent us from investing the billions and billions of dollars that are spent on taking children away and maintaining them outside the home, taking that money and diverting it to actual concrete assistance to families. Mm. Uh, And so uh, in all of these ways, this is not a system that is the best way to keep children safe and in many ways harms children and their families. Uh, What I'm arguing for is let's build a replacement for it that actually does support families and care for children and keep them safe. Yeah. Uh, You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking right now with Dorothy Roberts, who is a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of the book Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. We want to hear from you uh, on on the show today as well. Do you think our child welfare system needs to change? Do you think that black families are over-policed and that families in general don't have enough money or resources to take care of their kids? Can you imagine a better way to support them or a better way to handle this? Um, Are you an individual that was in the child welfare system or a parent that has had your child taken away from you? We particularly want to hear from you today. And you can call. The number, as always, is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Um, And again, Really hope to uh, get a lot of people calling in and uh, sharing their stories related to this and also their ideas about what the system looks like now and how it could be better. Again, the number is 313-577-1019. And Professor Roberts, I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of the child welfare system as it is now. Um, How did we get to this point? How was this built to what what we see now and what you say uh, is a system that is doing more harm than good? Yes. So this is another part of the false narrative of the child welfare system, the idea that it was started by charitable organizations that wanted to rescue impoverished children from neglectful parents, uh, abusive parents, and that it began in the late 1800s. Uh, Often there's a story told about a little girl named uh, Mary Ellen who was being abused in the home and the Uh, a philanthropist had to use the animal protection laws to save her because there were no child protection laws. So every part of that is actually uh, not true and covers up a lot of the true history. I think to understand the child welfare system today, especially the way in which it's concentrated in black neighborhoods. And I guarantee you, I haven't seen the statistics for Detroit. I heard you state the statistic of childhood poverty, and that usually goes hand in hand with where these agencies are concentrated. And I'm positive. Uh, I would put lots of money on this, that virtually all the cases of Uh, child welfare agency involvement are in segregated black neighborhoods in Detroit. That's true of Chicago. That's true of San Francisco. 
uh, the true Philadelphia where I live. Uh, now, in order to understand that, you'd have to go all the way back to the slavery era and recognize that a critical component of enslaving black people was to take total control away from black parents and give all that authority to white enslavers. Uh, and that included the ability to, at whim, destroy black families, to separate mothers and fathers and children from each other to be purchased by different white enslavers. And then after the Civil War ended, there was a white supremacist backlash against emancipation that included white people bringing petitions in family court and asking judges to separate black children from their families on grounds that their families were neglecting them so they could be apprenticed to former white enslavers. Uh, at the same time, uh, in the late 1800s, the U.S. military started a weapon of war against Native tribes, which was to remove en masse Native children from their homes and put them in so-called boarding schools. That policy was continued into the 1970s, official U.S. state policy in collaboration with the Child Welfare League of America to take Native children on grounds of neglect from their families and have them placed in white-run orphanages and with white adoptive parents. Uh, so this is equally part of the origin of the child welfare system, and even the narrative that pertains to white impoverished children in big cities on the East Coast, like New York City in particular, this was a way of dealing with children who were impoverished by structures in our society that didn't give their families the opportunities to make more income. And instead of structural change, the answer was to remove these children from their parents and put them into orphanages or into foster care, which meant working for foster parents. And in fact, that little girl was in a foster home when she was abused and taken out, rescued by this philanthropist. Uh, it also involved putting white uh, children onto so-called orphan trains. They weren't orphans. They were taken from their parents, but put on these trains in eastern cities and sent out to the Midwest and the Southwest to work on farms of strangers uh, who saw ads for these children, free labor if they just took care of them, brought them into their homes. But it was a form of forced labor of these impoverished white children. So every aspect of the origin of our child welfare system is about punishing impoverished people, especially punishing black and native communities, uh, a form of oppression, deliberate oppression to disrupt these communities and to take control of their children, and also forms of forced labor of children. Uh, as part of these origins of the child welfare system we have today. All right, coming up on Detroit Today, we are going to continue this conversation, this really wonderful conversation with Dor Dorothy Roberts, professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, about her book, Torn Apart, looking at the child welfare system and how she says it destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. We also want to hear from you what, have you had any experiences with the child welfare system on any side of it? Have you worked in it? Have you seen it work? Have you seen it fail? Are you someone who got caught up in the system? We want to hear from you today. The number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. And uh, also, if you have ideas about how we could build a better system, we would love to hear that as well. And that is all coming up on Detroit Today. We'll get to more calls after this.
listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Thank you so much for joining us today, especially for this conversation with Dorothy Roberts, professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. We would love to hear from you today. Give us a call at 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and Professor Roberts, I, I, I have a little bit of experience as a reporter in this realm. You were just talking about the history of the child welfare system a little more modern history related specifically to Michigan. Uh, When I was covering the state capitol and state government in Lansing between 2012 and 2016, um, one of the big conversations and a lot of the advocacy around legalizing marijuana was about medical marijuana families who were losing their children uh, even though they had medical marijuana cards from the state that they were still being targeted and having their kids taken away in many instances um, because there was this sort of targeting of people who were, you know, as as the state saw it, um, doing illegal drugs in their house. And this was something that really, I think, again, galvanized a lot of, um, you know, support and, and activism around marijuana issues in Michigan that were not necessarily related to marijuana use itself, but you know, family issues. Uh, but uh, I'm curious uh, what what you see as the effect of the war on drugs specifically on this issue and what you've seen in your research. Absolutely. The war on drugs is being fought in families that are targeted by the child welfare system. Substance use or just evidence of drugs in a home or assumed Uh, use of drugs in a home. And by the way, there are reports of black families being accused of using drugs just based on assumptions of caseworkers, even without evidence that they are. But the main point is that drug use is seen in many child welfare agencies as evidence by itself of bad parenting. Uh, When it's done, by the way, by impoverished people, especially black and native people. Uh, They don't go into wealthy neighborhoods, uh, by and large. Uh, This is rarely the case, and inspect those homes for drugs. But when it comes to impoverished neighborhoods, uh, working class people, then use of drugs is seen as by itself a sign that they're unfit parents. And so we see that even when drugs are legalized and even when there wouldn't be an arrest of somebody for smoking marijuana, the Child Protection Services serves as this punitive tool of the state to punish families for drug use. And this brings up a really important point that I highlight in my book, which is that in many ways, the child welfare system has greater powers to surveil communities and families. It has greater powers to intervene in homes, you know, to conduct intense searches of people's homes and to uh, investigate every aspect of their private lives. It has more power to punish parents because they can more easily take children away than they can convict someone of a crime. And so in this way, I see them, the, the criminal legal system and the child welfare system, or what I call it a family policing system, as working hand in hand. They collaborate with each other to give each system greater powers of the state to intervene in our lives. Uh, for example, caseworkers routinely conduct home searches without a warrant. They are required by the Fourth Amendment, just like any other government official, to obtain a warrant based on probable cause to search a home. But that rarely happens because they show up at the door and they threaten families that they're going to take their children away, that they're 
not letting them in their home is evidence of guilt. And people in communities, I'm sure like black communities in Detroit, know the power of these caseworkers to take their children. And so they usually let them in and the caseworkers conduct these very intensive searches of the home, interrogating family members, even strip searching children to look for evidence of abuse, going into every corner, opening cabinets, refrigerators, and then also prying into their private lives, going to schools, going to social service offices, going to doctors to get confidential information about them, which is only expanding because many of these agencies are hiring big corporations to conduct massive data uh, collections and algorithmic decision-making to highlight families that are supposedly at risk of harming their children. Uh, And so, yes, the war on drugs is being waged by child protection agencies in ways that expand what we normally think about in terms of the criminal punishment system engaging in this war on the most marginalized communities. Just to bolster what you're saying, one of the stories that I reported on uh, during that time, I believe this was 2014, 2015, was this was a rural white family. Uh, mm-hmm. The mother was having a medical emergency, and they called 911. And and uh, you know the the um, re- the 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 teams, all the the uh, emergency teams showed up uh, to help the mother. But when they were there, they the way they described it is they found a smudge of marijuana resin uh, in the home. Just a smudge. This was a family that had medical marijuana cards. Uh, the parents did. Uh, so, you know, they, they assumed that they were legally allowed to use marijuana uh, right. but because of the state. And because of the smudge and because they determined that the resin was made in a lab and not from a marijuana plant, which was also dubious, they took the child away from that yeah. home. Uh, that yeah. is, so that is a really uh, good example of what you're saying. It absolutely is an excellent example, and it reflects the way this system operates. That's not an aberration. There are many families who have their children taken from them because of some evidence of drug use. And it also shows my prior point that seeking help can lead to involvement by this system that has the power to take away your children. And so I would guess that in that rural community, when they heard about this family, they are going to be less likely to call for help when they have a medical emergency. They're going to hold off as much as they can because they know that calling for help means risking family separation and all the trauma that that causes and the harms to children of being traumatized by being taken from their parents and put into a system that can cause them devastating harms. So, uh, yes, that's an excellent story to illustrate so many of the points I'm making about why this system does not help to protect children or keep them safe. It is one that unnecessarily disrupts families even tears them apart, and we could imagine and build a far better way of truly supporting families and keeping children safe. Again, you're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today, and I'm talking with Dorothy Roberts, a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of the book Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families, and how abolition can build a safer world. And Professor Roberts, I want to talk to you about that word abolition. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, that is that is uh, you know we've we've talked around that issue quite a bit here. But I'm curious about the the question of abolition versus reform. Why do you think that we need to? We we often talk about this in the context of law enforcement. Uh, right. Why why do you think abolition is the answer uh, as opposed to finding ways to fix the system we have? Right. So many of the principles that Americans are now becoming more familiar with uh, that come out of the abolitionist movement to dismantle the prison industrial complex apply here to the family policing system and the foster industrial complex. 
Uh, and one of those is that when you have a system that's designed to oppress people, that's designed to target the most p- politically disadvantaged communities, you cannot just fix it. Uh, the, the problems with it, you know, all the problems we've talked about uh, so far don't stem from, a, from flaws in the system, from malfunctioning in the system. They stem from the very design of the system. That is how the system is designed to operate. So that uh, family whose child was taken from them, it's not because some aberration, I'm, I'm sorry, aberration, some fluke happened and uh, some extra vigilant uh, caseworkers came in and took the children. No, they were doing what they're supposed to do, you know, what they were told to do, uh, that you take children when there's a sign of drug use in the home. And so, and that's based on the design that the way to address needs of children is to take them away or threaten to take them away, not to actually provide whatever help the family might need. Uh, and so you can't reform it. I personally have been working on reform efforts for over 20 years before I wrote this book. Uh, I have been an expert in a class action lawsuit that lasted for nine years, uh, where I and four others were called upon by the state of Washington to put together a reform package and then see it implemented. And after nine years, the system stayed pretty much the same, which had been found to be violating the constitutional rights of children in foster care in Washington state. And I can give lots of examples where reforms just in some way strengthen the system because they leave this perception that it can be fixed and that these tweaks can fix it, that these class action lawsuits will lead to some change. Well, these class action lawsuits have been going on for decades and they haven't led to any kind of fundamental change. In fact, they keep coming because the system continues to operate that way. Mm. And so we can't fix it. We have to dismantle it and replace it with an approach that is opposite of the harmful approach that our system has now. And that means both chipping away at it through some kinds of reforms, like giving parents greater constitutional protections, you know, actually enforcing the rights that they have under the Constitution, giving them better legal representation, ending mandatory reporting, which only leads to driving people away from help that they need, uh, and other kinds of incremental reforms, but not reforms to fix the system, reforms to dismantle the system. And simultaneously, we need to be building a radically different approach. I already mentioned giving cash income supplements to families that need more income to purchase the, re- the, the concrete resources that their children need. Uh, having universal high-quality health care uh, so that uh, this woman, for example, who had a medical emergency, she can have the health care she needs without the fear that her children are going to be taken away from her. Mm. Uh, housing is important. Uh, being Having high-quality affordable housing for everybody. These kinds of revisioning of what it takes to keep children safe would be a much better replacement for what we have now. And we need more support of community-based, voluntary, generous, caring supports for families and children as well. And we only have about a minute left, but the, you do okay. note that there are folks who want to replace the system. Can you talk just really quickly about what's going on at the University of Houston College of Social Work? Oh, sure. Sure. So Alan Detlaff, who is the dean of the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work, and uh, Kristen Weber, who has worked for a long time at the Center for the Study of Social Policy, co-founded an organization called the Upend Movement, which is an abolitionist movement, and they have been producing documents to explain why we need to abolish this system. Uh, they very 
kindly, the university purchased copies of Torn Apart for all of its incoming students, uh, and uh, or maybe for all of its students, actually. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. And they've been uh, engaging in webinars and other kinds of uh, documentation of the need to abolish the system that people can access on their website. Uh, I'd also mention a great organization in New York City, uh, JMAC for Families, founded by a mother whose child was, or children were taken from her uh, because of an anonymous tip to a child abuse hotline that she used drugs. Uh, and she founded an organization called JMAC for Families that's been very active in promoting legislation in New York State to end mandatory reporting, to give better legal representation to parents, and also successfully limited the time that parents' names would be on a child abuse registry uh, that has limited their employment opportunities, their ability to care for uh, children as foster caregivers, uh, and it just damages their reputation in yeah. lots of different ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, those are just a couple. Movement for Family Power is another one in New York City. There's a rising movement. Yeah. Well, Dorothy Roberts, professor of law and sociology at University of Pennsylvania. The new book is Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Could Build a Safer World. Uh, professor Roberts, thank you for taking the time today. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk about my book. Stephen Henderson is back tomorrow on Detroit Today. Tune in for his conversation with Erin Q. Nin about her new book, Passing for Perfect, about the myth of the model minority. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thanks so much for listening.